Thank you for subscribing to the weekly sermons of Crossfire YC. We are the Youth Church of Crossfire World Outreach Ministries located in Springfield, Oregon. This podcast is updated weekly. Let me explain to you why you are finding in your Bibles Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Go ahead and find it in your Bibles. Let me explain to you why you're turning there. How, how preaching and sermons work, Okay. I spend time in prayer and studying and reading my Bible, and I come up with a message that I feel like comes from Jesus that's going to communicate something to you, okay? Keep, everybody keep kind of like, are we still on the same page? So I spent time, last night I was up until like 3.30, spending time, and I mean, that's not the only time I spent, but I've spent time putting this message together, studying, praying, and I put this together because I believe that it is a word that God wants to speak to us this morning. And I've, I've, I've known that about what I want to talk about this morning for almost two months, and God has just been continuing to give me different things, and I kind of assembled it and put it all together last night. So if in the middle, like if we're in the middle of the message and it kind of feels like, wow, that's really random. It has nothing to do with anything. Just know it was 3.30 last night as I was t- typing up my notes and stuff. So it, it could get a little like loopy for a minute there. But we'll try and keep it on track. But what I do is I pray and I study and I try and find a message that will speak to you guys. And the worst thing that happens when I do that is I get up and I, and I begin to share. And all I get is blank stares. And you guys are like... Because what that tells me is all of my prayer and all of my study didn't mean anything. And, and, I, and I'm obviously doing the wrong thing because it's not, it's not engaging you guys the way that I want it to be able to, the way that I thought that it would. So here's what happens. I think that when we're in church, there's this automatic like quiet mode that we go into. Like we've been yelled at enough in libraries that we automatically will go to like quiet mode when we get into church, when somebody starts talking. When a teacher is talking, we're not supposed to talk. So we're not supposed to react to what they're saying at all. So we go into like quiet mode. Okay, so here's what I need you to do. If you're a loud person, you feel more than welcome to say amen, hallelujah, praise God. If nothing, if, if you don't want to do that because you don't want to like embarrass yourself, then at least do this for me. Give me a smile and shake your head like, wow, that was really good. You're, that, that was for me. Okay, so at least I know that I'm not just talking to myself, okay? So you guys react to what God is saying. And as you react to what God is saying, that confirms in my heart. What I felt when I was praying and when I was studying, and as that get con- gets confirmed, it builds the confidence that I have in what I'm saying, and we can build along what God is doing, and the message will be powerful, amen? But you have to be involved. Amen. You got to be, in- at least give me this, I'm going to be involved. And you're not going to fall asleep. So Romans chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, and if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and, and, and read along with, like, just read along with me. You don't have to be out loud, but, uh, therefore, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law, uh, I'm sorry, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man. To be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but live according to the spirit. I want to read verse 4 one more time. In order, so God says, I sent my son, and this is why he sent him, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in who? In who? In who? So that the the righteous requirements, the things that the law requires in order for us to obtain righteousness, he sent Jesus so that those things could be met in 
Amen. Might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but live according to the Spirit. I always like to start reading my Bible. I feel like that's always a good place to start. But I'm going to pray real quick just to get us kind of in the, in the mode and, 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 and get ourselves focused. God, we thank you so much. And Jesus, we know that you are God of all. That God, the only way that we can do anything is by your grace. There's nothing that that we can accomplish that's worth accomplishing if it's not with you and through you. And so God, I pray that this morning you would reveal to us Jesus and show us who he is and what he was like, how he walked when he was here on earth. And God, as we see him, I pray that we would become more like him, that we would reflect him to the world so that they could see that you are a good God. We thank you and give you all glory. God, we don't want to take any of it. Lord, we hand this service over to you so that nobody can take credit for what happens but you. And we give you honor and praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. And everybody said, Amen. Have any of you guys ever been in a situation in your life where you have been absolutely terrified and dreadful because you knew something was going to happen and you just did not want it to happen? But you knew it was going to happen. Like some of us get like that with tests. How many of you guys are awesome test takers? You don't stress out. You sit down. You start like marking things. And you, you, you ace tests without even, even trying. You ace tests without even studying. How many of you guys are the exact opposite of that? And you'll sit and you'll stay up all night studying. Well, some of us, some of us stay up till like 4 o'clock playing video games, and then we stay up all 4 to 4.15 studying. And, and we wake up in the morning, and we're stressed out, and we're worried because we know that this test is coming. But there, there's things that happen in our lives that we know are going to happen, and we dread those things. We just, like, like my parents, how many of you guys got spanked, or, or you, maybe even you still get spanked growing up? I think I grew up in a different generation and a different time where parents weren't afraid to spank their kids. Like, like, like now your parents might take you into a bathroom and spank you. Whereas like when I was growing up, it didn't matter where we were. We could be walking through the midst of the, I'm using like King James words just so we can, just so we can remember that we're in church. We're in the middle of the supermarket. We're like in the cereal aisle. There's fruit loops and honey bunches of oats on either side of me. And I think it's always the cereal aisle because all of a sudden my little like kid brain started being like, sugar, you know? And so like I would start getting all hyper and my parents are like, bam, like right there. And you know what I mean? And like there was one time where I was like, where I like, I don't know, I don't know how I learned about what like CSD was, but I remember telling my mom, I'm going to call CSD. I'm going to call the cops and they're going to take me away. And she's like, good. I want them to. And I'm like, dang it. I don't want to be an orphan by choice. Jeez. Uh, but we, like, growing up, we got spankings, okay? And we, like, and, and they were, like, my dad, like, I, I we, what we did was we had, to, my dad would be, like, go to the bathroom. And, like, we knew that he wasn't saying, hey, you know, we don't want you to wet your pants, so go to the bathroom. We knew it was, like, go put your hands in the sink because you're about to get beat, right? But my dad would say, go to the bathroom. Sometimes my mom would be so mad at us growing up, and it would be, like, hours till my dad was going to get home from work, and she'd be, like, go to the bathroom. And so we had to sit in the bathroom with our hands in the sink, like sometimes for hours, just waiting for my dad to get home. 
Like, and, and you're just sitting there and you're, you're like, oh gosh. And every minute that passes, it becomes more and more dreadful. And I become more and more scared because I can hear my mom out there. She's still getting madder and madder. And she's waiting for my dad to walk through the door so she can yell at my dad. And after my dad gets yelled at by, how many of you guys know that after your dad got yelled at by your mom, the spankings were like 50 times worse? And so, so I'm standing there with my hands in the sink. Just waiting for my dad to come home so that he can beat me. And I'm just like, oh. And every minute that passes, it gets worse and worse. And then I finally hear the front door open. And then it's like, there's like a glass of water. And in my house, that glass of water had been sitting there for months. So it had like stuff growing around the rim. But there's like a glass of water on the sink. And it's seriously like Jurassic Park, dude. And it's got the little boom in the water. And you hear my mom talking to my dad, and I'm just like, ah! boom, boom, boom. Open the door. What'd you do? I don't even remember. I don't even know. Like, I don't know what I did. I don't know what it was. I just know that it was bad, and I'm really, really sorry. Then my dad would get, because we, we changed paddles so much growing up, like, because we would, there were, there were times where we thought, hey, I'm going to be smart, and I'm going to hide the paddle. And, like, seriously, then my, that would just, like, motivate my dad to, like, go and buy a harder paddle. And, like, the, the worst one was the flimsy one, okay? Steven, I want to tell this about, is Steven in here? Is, could, he's, it's a good thing he doesn't come to church because he would, he would be mad. Steven, one time, we had pull-up diapers. Um, I don't know, that's not a nice way to say it. We had pull-up diapers, and I won't say who they were for, Danny. Um, but <laughs> but um, we had pull-up diapers, and Stephen one time had the bright idea that I am going to wear one of these diapers. When I know that I'm going to get a spanking, I'm going to wear one of these diapers. Like, anybody ever try the book strategy? I'm no, okay, we got a couple. <laughs> we're so dumb as kids. You know what I'm talking about, like... My parents walk in and there's like a square on my butt and I'm thinking they won't notice. This is going to be good. It's going to work out real well. It's going to work out good for me. But, but my dad walked in one time and Stephen had tried to put on these pull-up diapers because he thought, man, that'll, that'll lessen the impact. It won't be that bad. And my dad walks in and like Stephen's butt is like four times bigger than it normally is. And, and my dad's like, dude, you shouldn't have done that. Now you're getting it bare. And you're just like, oh gosh, dad, no. You know, and the worst things were the flimsy things. Because those things, you could get a snap on them, right? Like, when you just, when you just, right? And you're just like, oh, gosh. So, like, I always had, there's, because I've been sitting there for hours dreading this moment with my hands in the sink, my dad would reach his arm back and automatically I'd be like, ah! Right? And then he would just swing anyways and just hit my hands. And it was like, what? Ah! And my dad would be like, get your hands back in the sink. You're getting another one. Like, oh, come on. Now my hands are like bruised. And like, I did this like three or four times. Like, oh, oh, dang it. I did it again. There was just a natural reaction because of all the fear and all the, and all the angst that had been building up in my, in me as I had sat there in the bathroom with my hands in the sink. It was like a natural reaction. It was like when the doctor hits you with that little triangle hammer on your knee, you just automatically have that little kick reflex. It was an automatic reflex. I don't understand why my dad didn't get that. It was an automatic reflex. What was that story? Oh, because we dread stuff. Because there's stuff in our lives that we dread. There's stuff that we know is coming that, that we just, we just like, we, it freezes us. 
Because we know that it's not going to be good. We know that it's going to cause us pain. We, and we dread it. And that dread causes us to lose hope. And so in the midst of our dread, we lose our hope. And I'm sitting there in the bathroom waiting for my dad thinking my life is over. It's going to be bad. And you sit there. And as you're sitting somewhere, as the dread and as the angst begins to build, you begin to lose hope. And I, I, I think sometimes in our relationship with God, we dread God. And, and the title of this morning's message, I, just, I want to make sure I read it correctly, is Serving a Powerless Purpose. Serving a powerless purpose. If you're taking notes, you got your magazines, write that on the top. Serving a powerless purpose. Sometimes with, in our relationship with God, what happens is we have so much dread of what's going to happen that we can't actually do anything for God. We're frozen. Do anybody ever see the movie Judge Dread? Sometimes it's that's the dumbest movie on the entire time. I'm just saying. But I sat down and actually watched it one night, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Well, I I just wasted like like I felt like playing video games was a waste of time, but this was an absolute waste of time. But I watched the movie Judge Dredd, and any time that like Judge Dredd would show up on the scene, like Sylvester Stallone all steroided out, just like in his big armor thing, he would show up on the scene, and the criminals would just be like, "Give up!" He's like, "I am the law." Right? Does anybody who's seen the movie? kind of old. It's not as old as Top Gun, and y'all were like all over Top Gun. It's because it's Tom Cruise and not Sylvester Stallone. Is that what the deal is there? Typically, when I speak a message, what I want to do is I want to build in anticipation, and, it, and then at the end, what I want to do is I want to have my main point of the message be the, one of the last things I say, because I want it to be the last thing, thing that you hear. But, but today, the one thing that I want you to hear, I'm going to start out with, and that is this. We serve a good God, and we desperately need Him. We serve a good God, and we desperately need Him. See, the Simpsons taught me if I say something three times, you guys will remember it. So what I'm going to do is I just said it once, okay? I introduced you to what we're going to say. Now I'm going to take a few minutes, and I'm going to explain what I just said to you. We serve a good God, and we desperately need Him. And then at the end, I'm going to wrap it all together by letting you know that we serve a good God, and we desperately need Him. Okay? So if if I say it three times, you guys will remember it. But we need to understand something. We serve a good God that we desperately need. Our God is incredible. You can't convince me that God's not good. I read the Bible too much. I mean, if you want to try and convince me that God is mean, if, that you want to try and convince me that God should cause dread, that he's like Judge Dread. That, that when he walks into the room, I should just be fearful and shake. And, and, and like, like my dad, I should, just, I, I should just sit in the bathroom and like fear when my dad's going to show up. If you want to try and convince me that God is the mean God with the magnifying glass and I'm the ant, you can't do it. Because I read the Bible too much to believe that lie. We serve a good God. We serve a great God. We serve an incredible God. Thank you. Appreciate that. Dread causes us to freeze, but we don't serve Judge Dread. We serve God, and He is good. Yeah. I say this, I, I, I was kind of choking around with somebody earlier, but I really believe this that God wants you to be happy. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that 
whatever we feel like makes us happy, we need to pursue that because God wants us to be happy. Because ultimately, a lot of the things that we want that we feel like are going to make us happy are actually going to bring us down and make us more discouraged. But God desires for you to be happy. The, the happiest people in the entire world should be Christians. The most blessed people in the entire world should be Christians. And, and a lot of times we say that, we're like, okay, yeah, the, most, the people with the most money, because we, go, we serve the God of the cattle on a thousand hills, so the people with the most money, Christians should have the most money. You know, I'm not talking about blessed like that. I'm talking about when you talk to a Christian, when, when one of your friends talks to you because you are a Christian, they should know that there is something completely different about you. They should know that you are a blessed person, that you are joyful, that you are happy in all situations. The most blessed people should be Christians because we serve a God who desires to make us happy. The Bible says this in Matthew 7-11. Where do you go in the middle of the night when you're tired and you're groggy and you need a Red Bull? Where do you go? Dairy Mart closes at 11. We're talking about late at night. You go to 7-Eleven. So I want to give you a scripture, and I want you to remember this. I want to give you a scripture. Matthew 7-Eleven, first book in the New Testament, 7-Eleven. When you are down, when you are discouraged, when you feel like you can't make it, when you feel like God has called you to do something that you can't handle, when you feel like your life is horrible and God messed up your life, go to Matthew 7-Eleven. It says this, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more do I give good gifts to my kids. Can I tell you that nobody in this room save Jesus has bigger plans for my son than I do. I'm serious. I'm like my son is going to play for the, I, like a lot of people are like, he's going to play for the Lakers. I'm like, well, that's really kind of out of our control. That's, that's up to the draft. That's up to the GMs. But, but my son is going to play for the Oregon Ducks and he's going to get like the entire campus of Oregon, you know, the University of Oregon saved. So like he's going to have like both of the things that I really want in my life to play basketball and, and get people saved. He's going to do both of those things. It's going to be totally extreme. And nobody in the world besides God has bigger dreams for my son than I do. My son probably will not have as big of dreams as, as I have for him. As he grows up, David, when, when he was, when he, when David was, when David was coming up and he was like, his reign, he knew that his reign was going to be ending. He stopped dreaming for himself and he started started dreaming for his son Solomon. And he started saying, well, I can't do this, but I know that my son can. And so he started getting stuff ready so that, so that Solomon could be remembered as the most wise king in Israel's history. So that Solomon can be remembered as the guy who built the temple. But it was David who prepared a lot of that stuff for him. Because the father has bigger dreams for people than the son does. Because nobody can outdream me of what I want my son to be able to accomplish. Now, I, I hope I don't force him into like, doing something he wasn't, doesn't want to do. But if I see him start like, like going to like, like, hey, Lydia's in dance classes. I want to join dance classes. I, I'll force him to do what I want to do because I'm not going to have a dancer as a son. Are you kidding me? So Matthew seven eleven. when you're discouraged, when you're in doubt, go to seven eleven. Get yourself an energy drink. God says this, if, I, if you know how to give good gifts, you who are evil, if you know how to give good gifts, how much more will I give good gifts? Now, how many, how many of you guys here are good gift buyers? There's, uh, look. How many of you guys here absolutely are awful? I'm not kidding you. I, I, I don't ever go shopping. Like if, if somebody invites me to a party or something like that, I don't ever go shopping for, for that person until like right before the party. I stop by somewhere and I literally will walk around the entire store. 
and just be like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And I, I, like, I have no idea what to get them, but I know that I have to get them something. My wife is not like that at all. My wife is a good gift giver. She, like, she like plans things in advance. She's got, like, Christmas presents six months in advance for our kids. It's crazy how good, and then she gives them to them, like, three months before Christmas, but so she can buy them more stuff. But, but she is a great gift, and I think it's because women have a natural propensity to shop. And, and, and naturally, men are, are not that good at it. Like, I'm, I'm normally a very optimistic person. No matter what's going on, I try and keep, like, an upbeat. I'm trying to be happy. And, like, even when, like, we're in the midst of fireworks, I'm singing how I love fireworks. And I try and be happy. And, and I try and be upbeat. And my, my wife, it, it, but we walk into, like, a mall. And me and my wife, like, switch places. It's like a Freaky Friday type of thing. We, like, switch personalities. Where my wife... All of a sudden, when we go into, like, we, we're having financial struggles, and, and she's always like, she's always like, oh, no, oh, no, like, oh, my gosh, we're going to, you know, how are we going to pay this bill? What are we going to do with this? And I'm just like, dude, God's going to take care of us. It's not a big deal. Upbeat, right? We walk into a mall, and all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my gosh, we're having so many financial problems. And my wife's like, credit cards, you know? Like, <laughs> we walk into a mall, and we switch places. Like, she's all of a sudden the optimist who, who's patient and, and can sit in a store for hours. I'm like this guy who seriously, if they don't have shoes, if they don't sell shoes in the store, I don't go in. Because if they have shoes, then they have something I can sit on. Yeah. And I will sit there. And if my kids are with us, it's even worse. Because she, she'll hand one of them to me. And I'll sit there. But I'll sit there for like 30 seconds. And I'm like, please, can we go now? But I'm like really, normally I'm patient. You can ask her. Normally I'm really patient. She's very unpatient. When we're at a restaurant... My wife, and people who have gone out to eat with us know this. My wife will, when she's done, she's done. She doesn't like say goodbye. She stands up, goes, babe, let's go, and walks out. And I'm left being like, I guess we're leaving. My wife is not a very patient person until we walk into a mall. And she can spend hours in a mall. Whereas I'm like five minutes in there, I'm like, oh, this is like, stop dripping the water on me. This is awful. And she's very patient in a mall. And we switch places. But she's, got, she's, a, she's naturally a good gift buyer. She's naturally a great shopper. It just, I don't know how she got it. She just naturally, she's like, I can shop with the best of them. Like, if she had money, man, like, she would, she would put Paris Hilton to shame. I'm telling you. Like, it, it, she wouldn't even have, she wouldn't hold a candle to the way that my wife can shop. But she's a good gift buyer. Can I tell you, God doesn't give gifts like I give gifts. Where I show up at a party and on my way to the party, I'm like, oh, i got to stop and get something. And some of us feel like that our relationship with God has happened that way. Like, we've made mistakes. We've had problems. And so God has to, at last minute, change his plan for our lives. And be like, oh, if they would stop screwing up, I, would st- I, would st- I wouldn't have to keep going to Walmart and buying them new stuff. I wouldn't have to keep going to Walmart and getting them new. Get- no, God has a plan for your life. He is a good God. He gives good gifts. He knows the gifts that will make you happy. He knows the things that will satisfy you. And he gives good gifts to you. Yes, thank you. He gives good stuff. Psalms 34, 8 through 10 says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Blessed is the man that takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good 
thing. They will lack no good thing. Anything good that's going to come in your life, God's going to give you. You will lack nothing that you need that's good for you. He'll give it to you. For those that fear Him, for those that trust Him, it's a good thing. But my question to us this morning is what type of fear do we have? What type of fear do we serve God with? Because I think the thing that stops us from having lasting turning points is we we forget that we serve a good God. And we allow other things to come in. We forget that we serve a good God. Romans 8, we just read in Romans, in in chapter 8, verse 3, it said this, what the law couldn't do, God did. What the law was powerless to do, God did. What the law could not work in us, God did. What, what the law was unable to do, God did. By sending his son as a sin offering for us. Now, a lot of people think that the sacrifice of Jesus was an incredible thing on the cross. And it was. Absolutely, he was brutally murdered. Brutally. But... I think one of the greater sacrifices that he made was the fact that he came at all. Because he didn't have to. He wasn't like required to. It wasn't like part of his job. Jesus had the coolest job in the entire universe. He was like the pyrotechnic at Disneyland. Like the coolest job that you can think of. I work at the happiest place on earth and I get to light stuff on fire. That's the happiest job that I think I could come up with. Jesus is the pyrotechnic at Disneyland. And he moves up here to Springfield, Oregon to be the janitor at your high school. So he can clean up after you. And he didn't have to. Nobody made him. It wasn't a requirement. But he wanted to. Because he's a good God. Because he loves you. See, the cross was an incredible sacrifice, but he made sacrifice even before he got to this planet. In the fact that he came was a sacrifice. In the the fact that he, he took off his royalty, his splendor, and he came down here in the form of a man, a sinful man. And then he did something even crazier. He lived his whole life and never made one mistake. He lived his whole life and didn't mess up once. And sometimes we think maybe Jesus just kind of tripped into that. Like he just, had, he just had a few good breaks. So he didn't. It was a decision that he made. That in order to save my people, I cannot do all of the things that everyone around me is doing. Because I want to reach people, I sacrifice the things that my human flesh that I just put on coming down from heaven, I sacrifice some of the desires that everybody around me gets to pursue. I don't pursue them. Some of us need to be like Jesus a little bit. Jesus, Jesus didn't just do it right and say, look, I did it right, now follow me. Jesus did it right and then he gave us the power so we could do it right. Jesus, he didn't just come and live a life as an example for us. He came, lived a life as an example. 
And then when he was done setting the example, like a lot of us, like if like when like volunteers will come to the church and you got to teach them how to do something, and you want to walk them through one time, and you're all done. Does anybody, maybe Pastor Aaron knows what I'm talking about. You want to show them one time. You don't want to take the time to show them 15 times the same exact thing so that they can do it. You want to show them one time so that they can do it. But what Jesus did was he came down and he showed us one time exactly how to live perfect. And then when he was leaving, he didn't just be like, all right, so do that. He said, I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit and he's going to help you when you don't feel like you can do it the way that I showed you to. Somebody say amen. Amen. That's a pretty cool thing. We serve a good God. God is good all the time. JJ, come up here. What? You know what we're doing, dude. You know what we're doing. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. Amen. I don't know why me and JJ do that. It's totally weird. But we do it. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. There, there, there is no question. He's good all the time. There, God doesn't have bad days. God doesn't wake up cranky. Nathan Southers is like the crankiest person I've ever seen wake up in my entire life. Second is my wife. But Nathan Southers is the crankiest person when he wakes up. And he always looks at me like, why are you a morning person? I hate you. And I'm just like, I'm just like I don't know. I'm not really a morning person. I just get up early enough that by the time that I start seeing people and interacting with people, all of the cobwebs are gone. And I'm like, like okay. And I've had like six Red Bulls by the time I've seen anybody. Anybody want a Red Bull? Red Bull. Red Bull. Red Bull. But you get a Red Bull. God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. The reason I want to emphasize these two things, the reason I want to emphasize this statement this morning is, does anybody remember the statement? We serve a good God. And we desperately need him. We serve a good God and we desperately need him. We serve a good God and we desperately need him. We serve a good God and we desperately need him. Okay, it's locked in. We're connected. The reason that I want to emphasize these two things, because when we leave this camp, the very thing that the devil is going to try and do is he's going to convince you of two things. One, he's not as good of a God as we told you he was. And two, you don't need him. When he, when he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, when he tempted Eve, and then Eve tempted Adam because ladies are evil, but they're just as evil as the devil. No, I'm just kidding. I'm playing. I'm playing. But when he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, he said, look, God is trying to hold you back. He knows if you eat this fruit, you'll be like him. And God's trying to hold you back. He's not really that good of a God. He's trying to, he's try, God is trying to stifle your creativity. God is trying to hold you back. That you could do so much greater things and God is mean and he's trying to hold you back from all of the things that you can have. And then he says this, and he knows that if you eat it, you'll be like him and you won't need him anymore. So he convinces them of two things. That one, God is not good. And two, they don't need God. And that's the, th- the same exact thing That when you leave this camp, after you've had an incredible turning point... I'm going through puberty, I'm sorry. Can I get a water? Um, When you leave this camp, and when you've had a turning point... I think my wife's grabbing it. I don't know. I don't care. I'll drink them both. I'll chug them. Um, When you leave this camp, he's going to do his best to convince you that God's not good. And that you don't need him. And so I want you to hear this this morning. 
Because this will take your turning point and make sure that it is a legit 180 and you never go back. If you can always remember and realize when temptation comes into your life, when hard times come into your life, when struggles come into your life, if you can remember that God is good and you desperately need him, you'll continue to serve God. But what happens is we convince that God's not good anymore. That God was good at camp, but he's not good anymore. Or we get convinced that we don't need him anymore. God is good and we desperately need him. Somebody say God is good. good. We desperately, 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 desperately need him. Beyond the words that I could express to you, I could have gotten a thesaurus out and read every single word for desperately. But beyond the words that I could express to you, you need God. More than you could even think about or imagine. You don't even realize how bad you need him. Some of you guys came up to the altar calls in the last couple nights and you cried out to God saying, God, I need you. I need change in my life. But you don't even realize how much you need him. You haven't even begun to experience how much you're going to need him. We desperately need him. Jesus is not an option. He's the option. He says, I am the way. And I love the thing about this. We hear this scripture. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I want to say this. Sometimes we we apply that scripture strictly to heaven. And we think, if you want to go to heaven, you have to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And that's your ticket to heaven is Jesus. And that's great. But that's not what he says. He says, I am the way to the Father. That means, if you want access to God, you come through me. If not in heaven... If you want access to God through here on this planet, you can't go to Buddha. Muhammad was the prophet, right? Yeah, Muhammad was the prophet. Allah was the God. You can't go to Muhammad. You can't go to Mother Mary. Any Catholics in the place that I'm making mad? You go to Jesus. He is your access to God. He is the only way that you can get to God. The only way that you can get what you need from God, who is a great father, a good father that gives good gifts, at your 7-Eleven moments when you're tired, when you need something, the only way that you can get to God is through Jesus. Amen? Amen. We desperately need him. There's two types of people that need Jesus. Two types. People in sin. Number one. Two types of people that need Jesus. People in sin. Evangelism is not effective when we have two extremes, okay? The first extreme that many times we fall into when we're trying to reach our friends for Jesus or when we're trying to reach people for Jesus, the first extreme that we fall into is, you're going to hell. We let them know about their need for Jesus. You're going to hell. You need Jesus. But we don't communicate to them how good God is. And the second extreme that we fall into is we say, hey, God is really good. But we never establish a need for salvation. We never establish, hey, it's not just that God is good and he's he's kind he's nice and it seems like you you should really try out God. It'll really work for you. God is really good. But we never establish why they need God. And so the two extremes that we fall into is you're going to hell and Jesus loves you. And those are the two extremes that we hit. But we don't combine the statement to say God is good and you desperately need him. 
God is good and you desperately need him. We say God is good, accept him. And when we say God is good, accept him, we almost leave it open as in, okay, well, that's a nice idea. Maybe I'll try that sometime. But then when we add you desperately need him to that, and when we can convince them, not, not that we convince them, but then when we can show them through the Bible that they really do need Jesus, that it's a real thing, it's a real need, when we can show them that, it combines the goodness of God and the need of man. A lot of times we're just like, you're going to hell. The Bible says you're going to hell. It's just the way it is. But the Bible says this, that it is my kindness that leads men to repentance. It's not God's judgment that makes people repent. It's not God, judge dread, I am the law, that leads men to repentance. It's his kindness. It's his goodness that leads you to repentance. So the first type of people that that need Jesus is people in sin. Amen. Anybody know some unsaved people that need Jesus? Let's try again. Anybody know some unsaved people that need Jesus? Do you guys live in a commune or something? Like, you don't know anybody that doesn't come to here to church? You don't know anybody like that? Let's let's raise our hands and then, like, together, if you know somebody that needs Jesus, amen. I'm still weak. What are you guys doing to me? Making me look bad. Just everybody shout, even if you you don't know anybody that's not saved, shout so it sounds good on the podcast. Does anybody know somebody that needs Jesus? God's good and we desperately need him. So the first people that need Jesus is people in sin. Unsafe people, that's kind of like an obvious, like, thanks, Pastor G, duh. You know who else needs Jesus? People in Christ. <laughs> Christians need Jesus. And, and sometimes what we do is we get saved. And because we got saved, because we said the sinner's prayer, we automatically start falling further away from Jesus than we were at the beginning because we start to think that, oh, because we did that, we're okay and we don't need Jesus anymore. And there's lots of different things that try and distract us. There's lots of different things that try and tell us God's not good. There's lots of different things that try and tell us that we don't need Jesus. But we need Jesus. We have to have him every single day of our lives. We are so independent in this country. How many of you guys know that? Miss Independent. I don't know what that's doing in we, we were so independent. And, and, and God wants us to lose our independence for a dependence on Him. We still need Jesus. Even when we said the sinner's prayer, we still need Jesus. How many of you guys know that? I think one of the things that the devil likes to use more than anything to convince us and to try and, to try and make us feel like we don't really need Jesus anymore is he likes to twist Scripture and use misunderstandings of Scripture to convince you that you don't need Jesus. How, how, did, how did he tempt, like Jesus came down, the God-man, from heaven. And he spent time in the wilderness being tempted. How'd the devil tempt him? Anybody know? With scripture. He took scriptures out of context and said, do this. And Jesus is like, no. Because I know what I need. I know I need God. I don't rely on my knowledge of scripture to keep me saved. I rely on Jesus to keep me safe. Do you know, and I wrote this in the, how many of you guys have read your article, the article that I wrote in the magazine? How many of you guys have read that? Read the 
article for crying out loud. I stayed up, I stayed up till like two o'clock one morning writing that thing so that Danny could print the magazine so y'all could read it. I said in the article that sometimes we think that reading our Bible and praying every day is what causes us to grow. But the Bible says this, that God makes things grow. Now, reading your Bible and praying are very important things in your spiritual walk with Jesus. But reading your Bible and praying without Jesus does you absolutely no good. If you are not consistently pursuing a relationship with Him and trying to be pleasing to Him and remembering that you're a good God and the only way that you're going to make it is with Jesus, you won't go anywhere. But if we realize that we need Jesus and we keep our eyes on Him, then we can grow. We read in Romans that there there are righteous requirements. In order to be righteous, the law requires certain things. The law has specific requirements for us to be righteous. And I want to just explain what righteousness is real quick. Righteousness is when you can stand in the presence of God unashamed and uncondemned. When you can stand before God, like, have you ever, have you ever been in like, like, like you, you've done something and so it makes your relationship with somebody awkward? Like maybe like, like you borrowed a shirt and then you stain that shirt. And so anytime you see that person, you remember that you stain their shirt and they remember that you stain their shirt. And so every time you walk in, there's always kind of this like automatic animosity between you guys. See, we've done some things that should create that animosity with us and God. And we should not be able to walk into the presence of God and just stand there. Like, hey, how's it going, Jesus? We should have to walk into God trembling and fearful, thinking, please don't kill me because I, I, I betrayed you. I stabbed you in the back. I dated your girlfriend. Now you're going to beat me up. But righteousness is when we can walk into the room and there's, there's nothing between us and God. We have free access to Him. We're in a right standing relationship with Him. And so when we spend time with Him, we're not ashamed. Because He's already met the righteous requirements of the law. Sometimes we say the Bible's not just a rule book. I've said that. How many of you guys have said the Bible's not a rule book? I actually heard a, heard a spot on the radio last night. that said, we look at the Bible like it's a rule book. But it's not a rule book. Has it, have you guys ever... Have any, if you, raise your hands if you've read the Bible. Pastor Aaron's not raising his hand. I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> He just, he just listens to podcasts and like puts a thing in his ear and preaches from those. So he doesn't actually need to read the Bible. Um, no. Have you guys ever read like the Old Testament? We say the Bible is not a rule book, but there's a lot of stinking rules in there. Am, am I the only one that's noticed that? Like when God's like, don't eat shellfish. That's not like a, hey, Jesus loves you. Not a rule book. It's a rule. It's a rule that he put in there. But, but the problem is this, is that we no longer live under the old covenant. We live under a new covenant. And because we live under a new covenant, the, the, way, that, the way that we relate to the law is different than when we were, before we were saved. Now, the way that we relate to it is different, but it has the exact same purpose. The law has one purpose. How many of you guys know what the law is? Just so I can kind of, I'll explain it if I need to. How many of you guys know what the law is? I need to know. Okay, I'll explain it. Yay. <laughs> This is why we study. Um, the law, it depends on who you're talking to. In Bible times, when they said the law, it depends on who you're talking to, but a lot of people felt like the first five books were the law. 
And then there were other people that felt like the first five books of the Bible were the law. But then there was also, they included all of the prophets and, and, and the judges and all of their sayings and things. And so essentially when, when you read in the New Testament and you're referring to the law, most of the time what they're talking about is the first five books. And usually more specifically, they're talking about the Ten Commandments. And, and because the Ten Commandments basically are a summarization of the whole law. And God said, the, but the law is perfect. Per, purpose? That's not a word. Can we make it up? Can somebody submit that to Wikipedia for me? The law has a purpose. And a lot of the times what the devil does is he tries to trick us into thinking that the purpose for the law is different than its actual purpose. He tries to make us think that the law was here for a very specific reason. So that we could gain acceptance by our obedience to the law. And if we can be obedient to the law, then we can gain acceptance and we can have righteousness. Because the law has requirements for righteousness. We read it in Romans, right? And so there are requirements in order. The law states requirements that if we want to be righteous, there are these requirements. There are these things that we must do. But the purpose of the law is not to give us a list of rules. The purpose of the... I can't get into it yet. Sorry. The purpose of the law is not to give us a list of rules. Galatians 5, uh, verse 2 through 4 says, Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. Again, I declare every man who lets himself be circumcised... That he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to justify, who are trying to be justified by the law, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. If you just listen, what happens is this: we get saved, we come to a camp, we come to a Wednesday night, we come to a church service, we spend some time with a Christian, and we get saved, and we fall incredibly, madly, passionately in love with Jesus. And then we go to a church service. And I think the most dangerous thing for a new Christian is somebody who's attended church for a long time. Because what happens is this. We have an incredible passion for Jesus. And then we go to church and we say, oh man, I just want to make God happy. I just want to please God. And we hear somebody say, here's how you need to please God. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And they quote for us the law and they say, this is how you're going to make God happy. Is by fulfilling the requirements of the law. And so they say, justify yourself by your obedience to the law. Justify yourself by your ability to obey. But God knew, even in writing the law, that we could not keep the law. That's twist. Like, sometimes I just want to go up to God and be like, come on, man. Why? If you know we can't do it, why would you ask me to? Pastor Aaron's like that sometimes. Just got, he, he has to push you. He's got to push you. If I can't do it, why are you asking me to do it? And God gives us the law knowing that we can't fulfill it. If you want to justify yourself by the law. Now, in Galatians, they have a, they have a pretty specific problem. And I don't know why they picked circumcision to be like, they're like, woo, circumcision. I think it was like one of those things where they're like, I got circumcised. If I had to go through it, you got to go through it. Like, I think that was kind of their, that's why they picked circumcision. But what they did was this. Paul left the church. He, he planted churches in the area of Galatia and he left the church. And then these false leaders, these false apostles came in and they started teaching them that the way that, that what Paul said was great because Paul came in with this incredible message of grace. 
of Jesus Christ. And Paul said it's all about Jesus. CYC kids are like, come on, man. Do you have to say that every single time you preach? Yes, I do. It's all about Jesus. And Paul came in with this message that it's all about Jesus. It has very little to do with us, and it has everything to do with Jesus. And so he came in with this message, and they got saved, and they got empowered, and they're living these incredible lives where they're reaching out to community, and they're touching people. And then these false apostles come in, and they say, listen, Jesus is great. Jesus is great. But if you really want to be righteous with God, then you need Jesus and this. You need Jesus and circumcision. They're just mean. Like, pick like don't eat shellfish or something. If you're going to pick something out of the law, pick that one. Don't pick circumcision. I don't want to have to do with that one. But they said, if you want to be righteous with God, then you need Jesus. And what Paul said was great. But you need Jesus and circumcision. And what they said to the people to convince them that they were right was they said, if God didn't want us to be circumcised, then why did he put it in the Bible? Why is it in the Old Testament? And so they came against Paul and they said, Paul's wrong. He's not, he's not even a real apostle. And they started, they started dragging down Paul and saying that, that Paul, he, he, he just he was no good. Like a lot of people do to, the, to, to preachers who want to give hope. A lot of people say, well, they're just, they're just trying to build big churches. No, they're giving the true gospel of Jesus. That he is our hope. And we can find hope in him. And so what they said is, that's great, man. What Paul told you was great, but it's just, it's really not enough. And Paul, he's, he's kind of secondhand. He kind of got his information secondhand. What happened was Jesus and Paul, they didn't walk together. But the disciples who we know walked with Jesus. And what the disciples are teaching is this, that you have to love Jesus and accept Jesus. But then in that, to prove your faith, you need to be circumcised. And so they tried to add something to Jesus. They tried to add something to what Jesus had said. And their reason, and the reason why they got convinced is because what they asked the Galatian people, the false apostles, what they said to the Galatians is, if God didn't want you to do it, why would he put it in the Bible? And see, if we don't understand the purpose of the law, if we don't define the law, the law will define us. If we don't have an understanding of the reason for the law, see, this is like something that that should be preached in churches throughout this country. But I'm telling it to you because I'm trying to help raise up a generation. I'm trying to help Jesus raise up a generation that has a clear understanding of who he is and what he's all about and how he loves them and how he's passionate for them. If we don't understand the purpose of the law, then we'll get caught in law living. And no matter how hard we try to fight it, we'll start saying, well, he said it in the Bible, so I really just need to do that. And there is, there is truth to the fact that we need to fulfill the law, but our, our fulfillment of the law does not come by us trying to fulfill the law. What did Romans say? The law, Jesus came to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law in who? Who did Jesus come to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law in? Do you want to go back there? Nobody remembers? I made you say it like four times. This is, Simpsons are liars. Let's read it again. No, no, listen, listen. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, we do not live according... Okay, wait, sorry. God did what, what, what the law couldn't do. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the sinful man in order that he could fulfill the righteous requirements of the law in who? 
in you and me. So we don't fulfill the law by fulfilling the law. We fulfill the law in Jesus. We will never be able to live up to the expectations that the law has. And God knew it. So we fulfill the law when we find ourselves in a relationship with Jesus. Passionately pursuing after him. So they said this and they said, if, if, if God didn't want you to be circumcised, then why was it in the book? I'm trying to think if I want to say this or not. A lot of, a lot of people that, that want to live by the law, they typically want to live by the law that already applies to them. Like they read something in the law that they're already doing. And so they get up and they start talking about how you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. So I believe that these people that came into the Galatian church probably already circumcised. I'm assuming. I wasn't there. But they came into the church probably already circumcised. And the, the part of the law that they were already fulfilling is the part of the law that they made sure that everybody heard. And the problem is this, that if we're going to live our lives to fulfill the law, then we have to meet the whole law. Every part of it. If you're going to justify yourself by the law, you have to meet the whole law. No shellfish. Ladies, when you're having your monthly, you're supposed to leave the city. I, I can't say the other one. I know it's youth church. I just can't do it. I just... A lot of us like to focus on the parts of the law that we already do. And we settle for that part of the law. But God says if you're going to start it, you got to finish it. Again, I declare to the, let, um, if a man lets himself be circumcised, that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. He says, if you try and be justified by the law, then you are separated from the grace that Jesus has done. Here's the thing. We can backslide in church. As a matter of fact, I think most backsliding happens in church. Because we settle for a law and regulations and we trade a love for a man to a love for a method we trade the love for a person jesus christ the passion that we had when we were first saved to just serve him and love him we save we we turn that over and we 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 put all of our passion into a program that's why not that there's anything wrong with seven steps or seven things that you got to do but that's why those seven things are not going to be the things that will sustain you. The things that will sustain you. The thing that will hold you together. The Bible says that God holds the entire universe together. And the thing that will hold you together and the thing that will sustain you is Jesus Christ and Him alone. You are alienated from Jesus if you try and be justified by the law. It separates you from Him. So, so what's the deal? If, if, if God wanted us to live our lives by the... If God didn't want us to live our lives by the law, then why did he give us the law? Romans 7.13. Did that which is good then become death to me? It's talking about the law. By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, the law, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Paul, like, he's like in a UFC fight with the law in the book of Galatians. Like, if you read it, he'll take a couple minutes to say something, and then he'll say, the law's stupid. I mean, it's not really like that, 
But he's like in a fight with this idea of law living in, in the book of Galatians. And he said, law is not good enough. The law won't make it. The law is it's not good enough. And he, the entire book is, is Paul saying it's about Jesus, not about the law. The whole book. It's not about the law. It's not about your requires. It's not about what you've done. It's not about your resume. It's not a, you know what's funny about resumes? We only include the stuff that we do right in them. I, I fired a kid one time. Just recently. So some of you guys might know who he is because... He actually quit, but I was firing him type of a situation. No, no, not Nate. Like I really fired, like this kid was really going to get fired. Um, but he quit. So I didn't have to fire him, but I wanted to fire him. And I, I, I took him aside and I said, listen, as a boss, I'm done with you, dude. You're out. I don't want you. I don't want to, I don't want to ever see you again. As a pastor, I care about you. I care about the fact that the next job you get, if you treat it like this, you're going to go nowhere in your life. As a pastor, I care about, I care about you to, enough to say this to you. And I said, if you were to put me on your resume or, or your applications, you better hope they don't call me. Because it's not going to be a good, I'm not going to lie to somebody and let them think that you're going to go in there and be a good employee when you're not. So don't put me on your resume. Don't put me on your application. And he goes, oh, I wouldn't do that anyways. Don't worry. <laughs> sweet, I did Sweet. You're misunderstanding it. When we write a resume, we make ourselves look really stinking good. And so we come to God with this resume of all of the laws that we keep. Jesus, of the Ten Commandments, I keep six. One, four, three. I don't know what I'm doing out of order, but priority. Seven, nine, two, and ten. Out of the Ten Commandments... I do this many. And we let God know that, hey, God, I did this right. I'm doing this right. Look at this. My resume. Pretty good. I was, I, I was a financial transaction specialist, which means I ran a cash register. But we make ourselves look so good on, a, on, on an application, on a resume. And we try and approach God based on our resume. And we've got to realize something. It has nothing to do with us. So why the law? So Paul finally gets down to where he's like, he's done with this conversation with the Galatians. Uh, Chapter 3, he asks the question. He says, what, if the law doesn't apply to us, then what then is the purpose of the law? And then he starts in verse 24, and he says this. So the law was put, into char- and put in charge to lead you to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Do you know that the law has the same purpose for unsaved people and saved people? Has the exact same purpose. When we go and we're trying to evangelize somebody and we say, hey man, here's the law. What we do is we try and show them that they didn't measure up, but even though they didn't measure up, God still loves them. Even though they desperately need him, he still loves them. And we try and show them they don't measure up. And we try and show them their shortcomings and things. And when we do that, what happens is this. The law is exactly the same for them as it is for us. The law points us to Jesus. The law does not boast about itself. The law does not talk about itself. Why the law? Why did God make the first five books of the old? Why is that so important? Why is it in our Bible? Because, and I'm reading Ezekiel right now, and I was talking to Pastor Dougie and and Chris Cheek about this just recently. I'm like, I'm reading Ezekiel, and I'm so bummed out. 
Because it's all about how they did all this stuff wrong and God's going to like wipe them off the face of the earth. And it's just kind of a bummer. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know if anybody else reads the Bible and is like, geez, that's kind of a bummer. But I've been reading it and going, man, that's a bummer. Poor Israel. But I read it and God talks about how he, he's going to do this. And then every once in a while, he throws in like a paragraph. So you've got like chapters upon chapters of how evil they've been and how God's going to punish them. And then he has a paragraph about how he loves them and he's going to restore them. Do you know why Ezekiel's in the Bible? So that we can look at it and realize that we're not good enough. Do you know why the Ten Commandments are in the Bible? They're not for us to look at and say, okay, I'm going to do the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are in the Bible so that we can look at them and realize we're not good enough. The purpose of the law, the purpose of the Old Testament, if you will, is to show us that we're not good enough. And it's to point us to Jesus. The law is a vehicle to get us to Jesus. The law reveals to us our unrighteousness. I had a young man who, who came to our youth ministry. And, and he started hanging out with some of these people from his school who, who believed that you needed to be baptized if you wanted to be saved. Like if, if you, you can accept Jesus into your heart, you can believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, but if you don't get baptized and you don't start speaking in tongues, then salvation is not really working in your life. You're probably not really saved. And he brought this guy to talk to me one time. And I said, the problem and the danger in what you're saying is this, that you feel like what Jesus did is not good enough and you have to do something to prove that you're good enough. And so this guy... He kept hanging out with him. I'm like, dude, listen, if you keep hanging out with this guy, you're going to end up getting into this thing where you, where you feel like you've you got to do it by your works and by your efforts. And he said, you got to, and I'm like, dude, just honestly, you need, to, you need to get with Jesus and pursue your relationship with Jesus and not pursue baptism or tongues, but pursue Jesus. And, and he starts hanging out with this guy. And about three or four weeks later, the, the guy that was in our youth ministry comes up to me and he says, I don't think I'm going to come here anymore because... because Everybody here is not as committed to Jesus as I am. And I'm like, okay. He's like, they all gossip. They all lie. They're they're all, none of them are good enough. And I'm like, dude, honestly, I told you to not hang out with this guy. Because what happens when you add something to what Jesus did, you begin, two things will happen. One of two things. You'll become self-righteous or you'll become frustrated. Because you can't live up to the requirements that you're setting for yourself that are not even requirements that God requires. God doesn't require these things of you that you're putting up there for yourself. All he requires is that you love Jesus and pursue Jesus. All of the requirements of the law will be met in a pursuit of Jesus. Or we get backslidden. About three months later, he called me up and he's like, hey, are the buses going to be swinging by my school? And I'm like, honestly, we don't run the buses anymore, but I will come get you. Because I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to see how he was doing. Three months later, and I talked to this young man And because he took the incredible passion that he had for Jesus and he tried to add to it, within three months, I said, hey, how's stuff going? And he's like, oh, it's going all right. I'm still kind of going to that that other church. I'm like, man, that's that's okay. I mean, I wish you'd come here. I feel like there's some issues with what they're teaching you. And he's like, yeah. And then I asked him because he had asked me a question when he left. And I I asked him, I said, so so I want to just know 
have you figured out that answer to the question? And he asked me, why, why is it there? Why does it, it, if we're not supposed to be baptized, if we're not supposed to speak in tongues, then how come in Acts, every time that people get saved, they speak in tongues? He says, why is that there? And I said, you know what, honestly, let, call me in a week and I'll tell you. I said, let me, let me think about it, let me process it, and I will answer that question for you. But he never called me and he never, I, I texted him a few times, he never texted me back until this three months later. And I said, hey, you remember when you asked me that question? And he said, yes. And I said, what do you think? And he said, I don't even remember. Like, I took the classes when I first started going to that church, but I don't even remember, like, what they said anymore. And I'm like, so what's going on? He's like, well, I still kind of go there sometimes. But pretty much I've totally fallen away from God. And I'm like, I wanted to say, I told you so, you know? But I'm like, dude, that's what happens. That's what happens when we don't depend on Jesus. That's what happens when we don't rely on Jesus. That's what happens when we look to baptism, to circumcision, to to the Ten Commandments, to to attain and to achieve our righteousness. Is we get frustrated and stop. Jesus said, my burden is easy. My yoke is light. But we try and add to it what Jesus has already done. The purpose of the law is to point us to Jesus. We come to church and the most dangerous thing for a new Christian, for a new convert, is somebody who's been going to church for a long time. Because we start telling them that you're not hardcore. I'm just doing this for John. (laughs) And that you live hardcore. And the legend of the wrench was way hardcore. He told me he was going to do that when he spoke at youth church a few weeks ago. And I'm like, I will do it. If you won't do it, I will do it. But what we tell new Christians is you think you're passionate for Jesus. You think because you love Jesus, you're passionate for Jesus. No, you'll be passionate for Jesus when you start reading your Bible 60 chapters a day, every single day. That's what I do. You'll be passionate for Jesus when you start to pray. Every day, for an hour a day. That's when you'll know you're passionate for Jesus. And we say, you're not hardcore unless you live hardcore. And a new Christian goes, jeez. This incredible love. This incredible passion that I got for Jesus at camp. All of a sudden turned into this heavy weight. That I have to try and carry. And it's all about Jesus. And the second we take our eyes off of Jesus and onto us. Is when we find ourselves frustrated because we can't do it. God gave us the law. God gave us the Old Testament to show us that it is impossible for us to please him. That's mean. God, come on. Why do you include half of the Bible to tell me that I'm not good enough? Because when we realize that we're not good enough, we realize we need him. Come on, somebody. When we realize that we can't fulfill the law, when we realize that it's not enough, then we realize that we need him. It's all about Jesus. It's not about your Bible reading. It's not about your devotion. It's not about how how many times you can go through the Bible in the year. It's about Jesus. And we do those things out of a response for what God has done for us. We got a letter. Crossfire Youth Church got a letter. Um, From a young lady. 
who had, who had been making some mistakes and doing some things and her life was falling apart. And she, she came to church and God did something radical in her life. And she became incredibly passionate for Jesus and what he was and who he was and what he was all about. And because it's a letter from a girl, I'm going to have my wife read the letter. Dear Crossfire staff, I wanted to write you this letter to say thank you and let you know that you're making a difference. Before I came to Crossfire, I was addicted to meth and had a very abusive boyfriend. I had no future and no hope. If it wasn't for God using my, your ministry, I have no doubt that I would be dead right now. I have been to many services, but one service changed my life for eternity. When the altar call was given, I felt empowered to respond. Inside me, there was a war going on in my flesh. It did not want me to get up and answer the altar call, but I knew I needed Jesus. The pastor asked three times for people to respond. On the third time, I stood up. I immediately felt free. That was my breakthrough. From that moment, I have never been the same. I fell in love with my Bible, and I read it all the time. It is my lifeline. When I have no hope, it gives me hope. When I have no joy, it gives me joy. When I have no peace, it gives me peace. I never knew what love was until I fell in love with Jesus. All I want to do is talk about him, about his work, and about the truth of God. Thank you so much, Pastor Aaron. Now I have the opportunity to help the young people the way that you helped me. That, you're supposed to say signed Elisha Ely. That was actually my wife's testimony. And many of you would look at my wife right now and think, she's probably like a church person. She's probably been in church her whole life. It's just kind of the way she is. She's just, she's a great mom. She, she loves kids. She talks to us. She hangs out with us. She, she tells me when my clothes are inappropriate. That's, that's your standard church person. When she got saved, she got radically in love with Jesus. And see, the difference between her and the person that I was talking about earlier is that he got radically in love with Jesus and he traded that passion for Jesus to a passion for works. And my wife just fell in love with Jesus. She didn't fall in love with a Bible reading plan. Like... Like, we used to tease her about it, and she, she never did it anymore, and I feel so bad. We're jerks in Master's Commission. But seriously, she would get out her Bible, and this is what it seemed like. She would get out her Bible, find a scripture. I'm going I'm to look at one of the prophets, because they're all mean. And she would find a scripture in the Bible, and she would be like, some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. And then, then the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them acquire of me at all? And she'd be like, isn't that awesome? And we're like, what the heck did she just say? 
What is she talking about? Every time she read this thing, it made her fall more and more in love with Jesus. Every time she, she, she got time in prayer, she fell more and more in love, not with religion, not with traditions, but with Jesus. And she fell more and more in love with him. But our problem is this. We fall in love with a tradition. And then when we don't meet up to that tradition, we get discouraged. When we don't meet up to those standards, we feel like we're not good enough. We feel like we're garbage. We feel like God loved us at camp, but he can't love us anymore. And and we fall in love with these regulations. And we let these regulations determine our relationship with God. Started the message out by saying, have you ever had anything that you dread? And my charge, the thing that no matter how much I prayed about this message, no matter how much I thought about this message, no matter how much I ever thought, man, I could probably come up with a funnier message. I could probably come up with something that would be for a, for a, for a Wednesday morning when everybody wants to fall asleep. I could probably come up with something that will keep them awake and keep them more in it. The law is for old people. The law, the law is for, uh, it's, it's, that, that's for like people that are extreme and they want to read the law. God, are you really wanting me to teach about the law? Is that, is that what you want me to talk about? And God said that your charge, your mission, when you preach at Impact 2010, Turning Point, is that you're going to tell a generation that repentance is not a bad thing. Repentance is one of the greatest opportunities that we have on the entire planet. Because we come to God and we kneel at an altar and we're so excited and we're so passionate about God. But then we get up from the altar and we fall in love with a standard. And then when we don't meet that standard, we dread going before God. Because we've, we've set up a standard and we've set up a law that we can never meet, that we could never accomplish. And because we're so discouraged and so unheartened, we don't even repent anymore. What is it that causes us when we think about repentance to go, oh, I got to go repent. I got to go have a turning point with Jesus. See, I think it starts when we're kids because my daughter, when she does something to somebody, it's not like, Lydia, you you need to go say you're sorry. It's like, Lydia, say you're sorry now. So we feel like when we say we're sorry, it's a bad thing. But, but let me, and don't use this as your excuse to sin. But understand something. Every time you say you're sorry, every time you make a mistake, God can use you to give himself more glory. Repentance is not a bad thing. Repentance is an incredible opportunity that when we mess up, we, we screw up. We read the Ten Commandments and we go, oh, man, I messed up number seven bad today. It points us to Jesus. So the very first thing that we read in Romans was, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Christians 
are ashamed of their mistakes. They're ashamed of the things they do. And they dread going before God because he's, he's a just God. He'll, he'll judge. Yeah. But lucky for us, if we're in Christ, he doesn't judge us. He judged Jesus. Jesus already bore out your punishment on the cross. Jesus already took it. And so we're no longer justified by our own works, by our own efforts. We are justified.